Well, good morning, Zoe Church. Uh, my name is Micah McDonald, and um, I get the privilege and honor of being able to speak and share with you today. And uh, aren't you grateful it's summertime right now, the opportunity to be outside and uh, maybe just kind of get away from the stress of life? Maybe it's a walk, maybe it's going to the lake in the summertime. There's so many amazing things to do in the summer. Uh, one of the memories I have growing up as a young man, one of my most uh, favorite memories of, and looking forward to was I had these four friends in junior high and high school, and one of my buddies, he owned a cabin about four hours up north, and it was one of the highlights of my summer, being able to ride in the big blue conversion van that he owned, his family owned, and we'd drive up to his cabin, and the thing that was unique about his cabin was it was on a private lake. It was in the middle of nowhere, uh, a peaceful lake, hardly any houses on the lake. It kind of felt like we had the lake to ourselves, and the lake was beautiful. It was one of those lakes where when you were at the edge of the dock, you could look down and see the bottom of the lake because of how clear and pristine the water was. And one of my most fond memories, one of the things we look forward to is um, just about every year, every summer, we would take the boat out at night. And we go around midnight, 1 a.m., just me and the guys. And one of the things we'd do is we'd bring the boat, put the anchor down towards the middle of the lake. And I remember this one night in particular. It was like glass. The water was like glass. And the only noises you could hear were maybe wildlife off in the distance or maybe a fish jumping out of the water randomly. But one of the things that stood out to me was we would anchor the boat we would lay down in the boat and we'd look up in the sky. And in this black canvas on a clear night, water calm, one of the things that was so mesmerizing and so captivating was staring at this black canvas of a sky, no clouds, but seeing these stars illuminate and light up the sky. You know, it's different because living in the suburbs, it's not like you can go outside your house and look up at the stars and take it all in for what they are worth. But when you get away, when there's not much electricity nearby, no lights, you're way out, away from society, you're on a private lake, it's like there was a glow on the lake and a glow on the ground because of the illumination of these stars that lit up on the black canvas and staring off into the stars, it made things simple again. It made things seem purposeful again. Things were quieted enough to understand that there was a maker behind these stars. There was a creator behind the galaxies. And when you look at scripture, you see oftentimes this word light being talked about. Christ himself said, I am the light of the world. Christ uh, challenged not only that he was the light of the world, but that his followers, his disciples, would be that of a light too, that they would shine in Matthew 13, that they would shine like the sun, that the righteous would, would have this aurora, this shining like the sun. Jesus also describes his followers of those of being like a city on a hill, a light for all to see. And he challenges those who follow him to say, hey, don't dull your light, don't cover up your light, but the light that is in you, let it shine for the world to see. You see this um, word light in scripture, 
and it's synonymous to this word life. Light and life went hand in hand. And where we're going today is we're looking at a letter called Philippians where Paul paints this picture on who we are to be, on who we are to look like, and he describes it like a sky full of stars, that the illumination of those who follow Jesus, that the followers of Christ would be like this picture of being a light in a dark world, that it would pop off the map. And so the title of today's message is called A Sky Full of Stars, that the very times we're living in that seems dark, that we are the church, followers of Jesus for such a time as this, are like what Paul describes, a sky full of stars to light up the world. Who needs hope? Who needs life? Who needs the light of Jesus? And I believe as we look at today's text, it will help illuminate and shed some light on what God is looking for, for you and I to do just that, to be a light in our world. Our reading today comes from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. We're going to stay in just four verses today. And it starts off by saying this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then, here's the picture he's pointing to, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. If you're taking notes today, the first point of being who Christ has called us to be, to shine like the stars in the sky, is number one, is we work out. We work out. And you might be thinking, um, does it make sense to go to a gym and those kinds of things? But no, we see in verse 12 right away, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want to mention a few things on what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because that's something that maybe doesn't make sense or it sounds kind of weird, but I thought salvation was a gift. And biblically, yes, salvation is a free gift given by God and his grace through our belief in Jesus. He gives us it as a free gift so that no one can boast about how they earn salvation. So we're in this context of working out, us working out our salvation with fear and trembling, keep that in mind, that salvation is a free, a free gift, but Paul is saying, hey, we are called through fear and trembling to work out our salvation. So here's how it looks like. Along this thought of we work out, the first thing we need to understand about how we work out is we work out salvation with Christ as our example. In verse 12, it says, therefore. It's the very first word. Um, uh, some translations say, so then. And whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you have to ask, well, what's the therefore? Therefore. And just moments before this, it's describing Jesus as someone who made himself nothing. He made himself a bondservant. He made himself humble, even to a point, death on a cross. And before even that, Paul talks about how we treat others how we would want to be treated better than ourselves about how we have the same mind of Christ, being of one spirit, being of one mind. So we see this call that in order to work out our salvations, 
our example has to be that of Christ. When you choose to follow Jesus, your goal and who he's shaping us to be like is to be like his son, Jesus. And Paul is saying, hey, in Philippians 2, verse 1 through 11, once you heard all that, once all that, there, therefore, be like Christ. This is our example. We work out our salvation with Christ as our example. Uh, number two, we work out our salvation from a place of love. The very next word there in Philippians 2, verse 12 is therefore, and then my dear friends. Another translation says, my beloved. He's reminding them that you are loved. You are cherished. And in order to work out, us working out, our salvation with fear and trembling, we need to understand that we do that from a place of love. Understanding that we work out our salvation from a place of love allows us to make room for one another's faults. It allows us to know that we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes. There are going to be things that we mess up on, that we don't choose rightly, that we sin with. And love makes room for faults. Love makes room for people to grow into being like Christ. We understand there are no perfect people. Everybody watching this right now is not perfect. We have things we struggle with. We have things we go through. And when we work out our salvation through, through love and from a place of love, we understand that every person is on a journey and therefore we make room for people who are on the journey and on the process too into growing like Christ. I remember um, working out at LA Fitness and I remember I was warming up with some weights in my hand and I wasn't looking, I wasn't aware and I had a major fail. I messed up majorly. I took this two and a half pound weight and I was going like this and just all of a sudden I felt a, a body. I went boom and I heard this. <gasps> and it was a lady, I had hit her in the chest, okay? Very awkward. I failed miserably. It was very an awkward moment. But there was room for my failure. I didn't get kicked out of the gym. I didn't say, hey, you're never allowed to come back. The lady ended up being fine. But sometimes I think when we see others, in fact, Christians fail, it feels like we give us the moral right to kick them out of the church and say, see, you don't belong here. And that's not what Christ is about. To work out our salvation with with fear and trembling means to make room for one another, to uh, understand that we are loved and we operate from that place. Number three, uh, we work out salvation by obeying. The very next statement there in verse 12 is, as you have always obeyed, not only in my present, but how much more now in my absence. Paul is talking about obedience and the gospel demands obedience. The gospel is this, is that you and I were lost in our sin, that we were dead in our sin. And when we heard that there was another way through Jesus, there was a, a command to obey, to follow. In order to obey and follow Jesus, it means this, turning from sin, repenting, which means to turn, to change directions, and to follow Jesus now. The gospel, even in its DNA, has its roots in obedience. You know, um, when we choose to follow Jesus, we don't get the uh, um, opportunity to say, well, I like it like this, so I'm going to do it this way. We surrender our rights. We surrender our desires, our wills. We surrender that 
for what God has to say through his word. It's why every Sunday uh, we preach the word of God, we teach the word of God, because our life is to come under God's word, to come under with his teaching. In fact, Jesus said it this way, look, there's a lot of people who listen to me, but the people who are going to be blessed are the ones who obey me, are the ones who do what my word says. And so blessing follows obedience. How we work out salvation is by obeying God's word. Number four, we work out salvation by taking personal responsibility for our spiritual growth. What Paul's attempting to get here in verse 12 is this big word called sanctification. It's growing in Christ. It's becoming like Christ. It's growing into the likeness of Christ, right? But he talks about how, hey, I've noticed you obey when I'm around, but when I'm not around, all the more for you to obey and follow the teachings of Jesus. In other words, you got to own your faith. you got to take personal responsibility. And, and I feel like so many of us can have the propensity to rely on teachers or to rely on pastors or once-a-month teachings or once-a-month Sunday services. And this call to follow Jesus is an everyday thing. And if we do not personally own it and become personally responsible then we miss out what it means to work out our salvation. And then the last one, number five, is we work out our salvation with a healthy fear and trembling of sin and of God. It's the last statement you see there. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. When you look at man encountering God, you see this awe, you see this trembling. When Isaiah and Isaiah 6, you see Isaiah stricken with his own sin and there's a fear and there's a trembling that he has when he encounters Christ in Isaiah chapter 6. When Peter encounters Christ for who he is, he is trembling with a fear and trembling when he says, Jesus, get away from me. And Jesus doesn't get away, he draws near. When the disciples are in the boat and they see the wind and the waves die down and go completely calm. It says they were filled with fear and awe. There was a trembling to them. You guys, in order to work out our salvation, there was a call to do it with fear and trembling, to recognize that he is holy, that he is all-powerful, to recognize that the beginning of wisdom is fear, that humility and honor follows a healthy fear of the Lord. And when we hear fear, we might think like, oh, the boogeyman, or I'm scared. But this word fear talks about a deep reverence, a deep awe for who God is. If you want to find life, if you want your salvation to be worked out, it means for us as a church, as Zoe, to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. I want to give an illustration of kind of how this all looks like. Because the last thing I want you to do is to think that you earn your salvation when salvation's a free gift. Let me help you illustrate to, to show you what I'm talking about here. Um, there was a, uh, a, a Roman scholar 60 years before Christ. His name was Strabo. And Strabo uh, wrote about uh, how there were these Roman-owned mines in Spain and how these workers would work out of these mines the precious jewels that were inside these mines. The same Greek word to work out that's used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 is the same Greek word that this scholar uses to describe how these workers were in these mines and they were excavating and they were working out and they were mining the beautiful jewels that were inside the mine. And it's kind of like this with our walk. We are called to mine out of our life what God has richly deposited there in salvation. 
I am, we are called to produce uh, such precious nuggets of godly character from what he planted there when he saved me. In other words, when Christ saves you and Christ uh, meets you, he now becomes inside of you. And to work out our salvation is like that, to mine what God has done in us, to work out what is already inside of us, which leads me to my next point today. Number one, we work out, and number two, Christ works in. The very next verse, you see Paul write this. He says, he says this in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. For it is God who works in you. Two different examples. Paul says, work out your salvation. And the very next verse, he said, God works in you. This Greek word, uh, it's called energeo. It's called work. It provides sort of an energy to work towards completion. And the thing that's unique about the God of the Bible versus the God of Hindu or the God of Islam or all the other gods is the God that we serve is not a God who was manufactured by man and made up. But this was the God who existed before anything. He is the great I am. He not only is the great I am, but this God that we serve chooses to now dwell in us. He lives with us. He is a personal God. And it's his energeo, it's his energy, it's his power at work within us. When Jesus left the world and Jesus left the earth, he talked about how the Holy Spirit would come and now live inside of us. And one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is this word dunamis, this word power, that when the Holy Spirit comes, that he would give us power to be his witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What we need right now to recognize as a church is that God is at work in us. And this word, you, he's at work in you, it's a plural word. Paul is addressing the church at large. And what we need to recognize, you guys, is God is at work in us. As a church, Zoe, we are called to work out our salvation through fear and trembling, with Christ as our example, with Christ as our mindset. However, don't forget that it's God who first chose you. It's God who's at work in you. He is moving in our church in Burnsville. People are coming to know Christ. People are wanting to grow into the likeness of Christ. God is at work. It's his energale at work in us. Why is it? Because Paul lays it out. So that your will and your act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's his purposes. It's his work in your life. It's his energy. It's his power. It's his grace. It's his mercy at work in you. He desires to see it all the way through. Why? For his purposes on the earth. And then we see Paul shift a little bit. We see him take the text of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's at work in you. Don't forget that he works in you. But then he kind of shifts a little bit and he kind of maybe catches him off guard a little bit. But to them, they'd understand this. In verse 14, Paul says this. Do everything, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Paul gives this warning, and here's the warning. Hey, Christ is in you. 
You're working out your salvation, but one of the things that can destroy, one of the things that can hurt what God wants to do in you, how God's working out salvation through you, one of the things that can destroy that is when you allow complaining, arguing, um, grumbling, when you allow that to exist in your life. And why is that? Because complaining spreads. Complaining isn't just you in your car driving and complaining to yourself. Complaining leaks. Arguing leaks. It gets out on social media. It gets to your family. Your kids end up hearing about it. And one of the things that Paul constantly addresses in his letters to the churches in every letter is this letter of unity, this issue of unity, to keep the unity, to have the same mind of Christ, to protect the unity. Every letter the apostle Paul writes, he mentions unity. Why? Because God blesses unity. And when he thinks of the church at large, he thinks of a stars, sky full of stars, lighting up a world for the world to see that something is different. But what destroys unity in a church? What destroys unity in the mission of the gospel within the people of the church? What can destroy the work of God in your life? His energy is when complaining and arguing becomes at the forefront of people's minds. It destroys, it hurts. And we don't only see it right now happening in our society, in our time, but we actually saw it happening when God led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Literally within days in Exodus chapter uh, 16, Exodus chapter 17, within days of people being delivered from slavery, they're already grumbling and they're already complaining. In fact, oftentimes complaining happens when people take their eyes off God and they point to a leader. In this instance, it was Moses. Moses, what are you doing? Moses, why'd you lead us here? Moses, what water are we going to drink? Moses, why are we eating the same food? So much so that Moses wants to die. He wants to be done and be rid of his job because the complaining of the people is so strong and so much that ultimately it makes God angry. It disturbs God. Why? Because complaining is not necessarily an assault on a leader that we point out. Complaining is ultimately a grievous sin against God. Complaining ultimately says, God, I don't trust you. God, I don't trust your plan. God, I don't trust your working in me. God, I don't trust your power is in me. God, I don't trust that you're living in me. God, I don't trust you. To complain is to not trust God and the working he desires to do in you. It's why Paul says, stop it. Stop complaining. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes it there in the church of the Corinthians that the reason why this was documented in Exodus and Deuteronomy and in Numbers, the reason why this was all documented here, so that it might be a warning for you and for me on how God deals with complainers. God does not stand for complaining. God cannot let arguing and complaining. It ruins what God wants to do in you, in Zoe. And I wonder right now how easy it is to complain, to argue, to find arguments, to find disputes, to find disagreements, to lash out. How easy is it right now? To find people, even in our own church, that we disagree with, that we don't like, that now we have 
formed a tainted view of somebody, even within our own church, because they disagree with us on this or they don't see it this way. God is saying, stop it. Stop complaining. Stop arguing. Stop grumbling. And there's three reasons why we're called to stop. Number one, for your own sake. For your own sake for you, for your benefit, for your health. Paul goes on just after that to say, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation, so that you might stand out, so that you might be blameless and pure, complaining, arguing, grumbling, taints the purity of the follower of Jesus. It is a sin against God and not just against God, but against the church. It's a sin against his bride. It's a sin against one another. Not only for your sake, but number two, for the sake of others. For the sake of a dark world. This is the picture Paul is trying to paint because we live in a crooked generation If you stay away from that, then, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Can I just say this? When people see on our Facebooks and they see in our Twitter, our Instagram, and they see the complaining and they see the arguing, you want to know what it does? It gives justification for somebody else to be like, I'm never going to Zoe. Well, see, that's exactly why I don't want to be a follower of Jesus. Because if this is what this person looks like, and I constantly see complaining, I'm constantly watching them get in arguments. I'm constantly watching them fight. I don't want nothing to do with that Jesus. It ruins and taints the witness of the gospel when the world watches not a sky full of stars meant to shine brightly, but they watch the tainting and the warped and how people who love Jesus can't even love one another. Why? Because complaining is at the forefront. For the sake of others, so that the gospel might go forth, so that people might see something different. And then number three, for the sake of our pastor. And this isn't what I am giving you as an opinion. It's not my suggestion. But right here in Scripture, It says this, as you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I do not run or labor in vain for the sake of spiritual shepherds, of pastors, so that they might be able to stand before God and say, God, I addressed this. God, I spoke on this. God, I taught the people. God, I love the people in such a way so that I did not labor in vain. God, I led them towards your word. God, I led them towards you for the sake of yourself, for the sake of others who desperately need hope in a time like this. They don't need our complaining. They don't need our arguments. And for the sake of our spiritual leaders who pour into our bodies across America, to see the church become who God is calling us to become. We are called to be like that picture, a sky full of stars. We are called in the times of darkness and times of hopelessness to be a beacon of light, to offer hope, not our opinion, not our suggestion, but to offer the love of Jesus as our example, who made himself nothing, who led with humility, who laid down his rights, who chose forgiveness with those who came against him, who chose mercy with those who would beat him. Our example of that. That of Christ Jesus is that to be the 
present context of what it means to be the light in a dark world. In fact, a picture and how Paul paints on what the church is meant to be like, that in a crooked generation, that we might shine like the stars in the sky. What does it mean to shine like the stars in the sky? I think of a couple stories, one of a young lady by the name of Peggy. Peggy was different. You see, Peggy, uh, her mom and dad were missionaries to Japan in 1939. And when the war started in Japan, the missionary parents and her family left to go to the Philippines. Well, it was Japanese soldiers who hunted down her mom and dad and killed her parents. Peggy, this young girl, was in America at the time because of the danger of the war. And Peggy decided to give her life to work with prisoners of war. In fact, who did she end up serving but Japanese soldiers who ended up becoming prisoners of war? And it was this young woman named Peggy who had every right to be vengeful, to look to get revenge, to hurt these Japanese soldiers that killed her parents. But what did she do? She treated them with kindness. She treated them with forgiveness. She treated them with God's mercy. She explained to them how Christ made a different way. She explained to them how much God loves them. You want to know what Peggy was doing to a bunch of Japanese soldiers that thought they were going to die? is they were shown a different light. They were shown something different, that in a crooked and perverse generation, someone named Peggy shone brightly like a star, so much so that it led to the salvation of these soldiers to come to know Jesus. And when these soldiers came to know Christ, it spurred on other Japanese soldiers that began to describe their experience of being a prisoner of war, expected to be mistreated, but here they were being treated like a king by someone named Peggy, whose parents were killed by Japanese soldiers. I think of someone named Jacob DeShazer, who was um, landed a B-25 bomber plane who bombed Japan and landed in China, but it was controlled by Japanese soldiers. He was taken captive as a prisoner of war in Japan for 40 months. For, 20, for 34 of those months, he was in solitary confinement, being mistreated, being abused, being malnourished, being mistreated, being hurt, being whipped, being beaten by these soldiers. After 25 months of serving in, in this prison of war, he asked for a Bible. And for three weeks, this U.S. soldier read the Bible, got wrecked by God, encountered Jesus through fear and trembling, and decided to forgive his accusers, to forgive these perpetrators, to forgive these abusers, and treat them how Christ would treat them. Well, the bomb of Hiroshima hit. He was released and brought back to America through the freedom at the end of the war. And God spoke to him and said, go back to Japan, start a church in the very city that you bombed. And now to that day, back then in 1940-some, he went back to the city and began proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very people that he bombed. That is what it looks like to shine like a star for a world to see. It leads me to my big so what today, that when we work out and Christ works in, then we will shine like the stars. When we work out and Christ works in, then we will shine like the stars. I have a challenge for you this week. My challenge is straight from scripture. Here's what I want you to do this week. 
Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything this week without complaining, grumbling, or arguing. And watch how God might use your witness for a world around you that desperately needs hope and light and to see that Jesus is still alive through the people that he loves called the church. God loves you so much and desires to work through your life. And one of the ways we can work best is by what we don't say or by what we hold within our tongue, to not argue and to not complain. If you're watching today and you don't know the love of Jesus, you got to hear about who Jesus is and what he does when you follow him. Jesus made a way for you on the cross through the sin that you and I and the punishment that we deserved, he took that upon himself. He took that wrath upon him so that you and I might walk in light and his life here on earth and forever into eternity. That is available to all who would obey, turn from their sin, and follow him. Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to grow in Christ, to work out our salvation through fear and trembling so that your work in us, God in us, might see us through your glory, through your pleasure, God, through your kingdom on this earth. I thank you, God, that we have the opportunity to be like Christ, to stop our arguing, to stop our complaining, to follow you with all of our hearts. God, let America, God, let the world see how awesome you are, how amazing you are. May they be filled with the light and hope of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.